Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, checking in with Zoo Atlanta and how the attraction has stayed open during the pandemic. You know, a lot of our education programming, we've had to take virtual. Some of our wild encounters, we couldn't do anymore. So I mean, we had to make sure we kept both staff safe, our guests safe, and animals safe. That conversation coming up with CEO Raymond King in just a moment. But first this, as the Biden administration tackles a new vaccine distribution plan, states like Georgia, well, they'll have to wait on those vaccines. Georgia Department... Department of Public Health Commissioner Dr. Kathleen Toomey in a press conference today stated Georgia simply does not have enough COVID-19 vaccines to meet the demand. But I want to remind everyone that our allocation really is not very large for a state of our size with a population of, of 11 million. And our allocation is based on total population, but there's very little vaccine. I was on a call with CDC and um, the new administration over the weekend and was told that it may be as late as April before the vaccine will be ramped up to the point that we'll get more doses. We're hoping it will be sooner. We certainly will use it as soon as it's ready. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp added this means those not in the 1A plus group, they'll have to wait. There has been a lot of public conversation about educators and school staff and those with developmental disabilities being made eligible for the vaccine beyond those current seniors and otherwise eligible. I can assure everyone watching today that I hear these concerns and I share your hope that we can vaccinate these deserving Georgians soon. The truth is we do not yet have enough vaccine for those most at risk serious complications or death from this virus. With nearly 530,000 Georgians vaccinated, we have not yet reached the halfway mark to the current A1 plus population, which, as I said last week, numbers over 2 million people. Now, we'll have a conversation with Dr. Jane Morgan a little bit later in the program to talk about the vaccine. You heard Governor Kemp mention the number of vaccines administered so far now. However, according to the new vaccine dashboard provided by the Georgia Department of Public Health, at this time, 674,000 have been vaccinated. And as well as the other daily COVID-19 information we give you, well, here you go. 722,062 cases in total have been confirmed here in Georgia. In addition, 48,498 have been hospitalized, and of those, 8,203 were considered ICU admissions, and to date, 11,854 Georgians have died due to the virus. This is always information we get to the we get from the Georgia Department of Public Health. Now, in some related news, some students in Gwinnett County Public Schools, well, they're back in the classroom as of yesterday. Parents had the option of choosing whether they want their kids to attend or, you know, stay home and do it virtually. Clayton and DeKalb County Schools remain online due to a recent surge in coronavirus cases. Over in Cobb, as the AJC reported, 120 educators did not report to work yesterday. The district is allowing in-class instruction as well as virtual. And last week, sadly, two educators, Dana Johnson and Cynthia Lindsay, died from the coronavirus. A fellow educator, Patrick Key, died this past Christmas Day from COVID-19. Now, in the, in the Atlanta Public Schools, kindergarten through second grade, they've been given the go-ahead to return to class. I saw a few of them this morning heading into a building with their little mask on. APS will delay in-class instruction for students in third through the 12th grades. And as always, a note of disclosure, WAB's broadcast license is held by the Atlanta Board of Education. 
Jane Fonda will receive the Cecil B. DeMille Award at this year's Golden Globe Awards ceremony. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association made the announcement today. The award is given annually to those who make a lasting impact on the film industry. Fonda, of course, has so many ties here in Georgia. The two-time Oscar-winning actress, she also currently stars in the Netflix series Grace and Frankie. And, of course, you know Fonda helped create the Georgia Campaign for Adolescents' Power and Potential, also known as GCAP. The awards will be presented to Fonda on Sunday, February 28th. And finally, a celebration of Hank Aaron's life is currently underway at Truist Park. The Hall of Fame baseball player, civil rights activist, and philanthropist died last Friday. He was 86 years old. Now, today's memorial service is private due to the pandemic, but is being broadcast on Major League Baseball and Fox Sports Networks, as well as online at Braves.com and the Braves Facebook and YouTube pages. There will be a private funeral service tomorrow afternoon at Friendship Baptist Church, and the service will be streamed live here during Closer Look at 1 p.m. Stay tuned. There's more ahead. Producer Grace Walker's been busy with the music beds. I like that, Grace. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. You know, last year in May, after being closed for nearly two months under Governor Brian Kemp's shelter-in-place order due to the pandemic, Zoo Atlanta reopened. Back then, I spoke with the president and CEO Raymond King right before Memorial Day weekend. At the time, the zoo had been open a few days and offering a new zoo outdoor experience to help keep staff and zoo goers safe. We spent uh, over a month planning for our reopening, not knowing when that would occur, but wanting to make sure we were prepared to do so in a safe fashion for both our teammates, our guests, and the animals. So um, it was extensive planning, uh, multiple conference calls each week uh, with all members of the team involved in the planning. Uh, we implemented you know, a large number of new policies and protocols to assure that it was going to be a safe experience because frankly you know that was the number one criteria as to when we reopened was when can we do that safely well we are now approaching a year into the pandemic and recently i followed up with president and ceo raymond king to simply ask hey how's it going i'm pleased to report we've been able to remain open and have not had to close subsequently and i think the best uh test for whether we were successful or not is the fact that our attendance has been fairly strong. Hmm. Uh, People have come and enjoyed being outdoors in a socially distanced fashion, wearing masks, and have felt quite safe. So we've gotten very good feedback from guests. Um, So, you know, our attendance during the summer was weak just because of the heat. Heat and mask wasn't a great formula for Hmm. a lot of fun. But once the heat died down, our attendance really picked up. And uh, in the fall, we were running probably about 80 or 90 percent of the prior year's attendance, whereas earlier in the year, it was like 40 or 50 percent. Now, having said that, we still ended up the year with only 410,000 visitors versus what would have been a million plus. Mm -hmm. So it certainly had a dramatic impact on us, but we saw it continue to improve throughout the year. And Raymond, let me ask you this, uh, as far as your staff, everyone safe? Do you know if you had anyone that contracted the virus? We've had just very isolated cases, so there's not been any outbreak, and we've you know, not had to shut any departments down or anything. Obviously, if somebody has come down with COVID, we've done all the, uh, the, you know, the testing and the protocols to make sure the contact tracing's done, and it really has not caused any problems. So it, it hadn't been that much different from normal flu season in that regard. Obviously, the people that had it, I'm sure we're not very happy to have it, but sure. uh, it's been very limited. And in terms of staffing, any layoffs, any furloughs, everyone was, you were able to keep everyone? No, well, when the when we first shut down, we had to take major head cut productions. But then very quickly, we got a PPP loan uh, from the CARES Act, and we're able to bring back the majority of people. So, you know, we're not at full staffing, but we're pretty close to it from full-time staff and a l- little less part-time staff just because we have lower volume coming through the zoo. Um, but, yeah, fortunately, because of PPP, not, not many people lost jobs. You know, when you're outside, obviously you're able to practice social distancing, but you all had to close some of those inside experiences, correct? And they're still closed? Right. Like my beloved yeah, reptile house. Closed. Well, no, we have opened Scaly Slimy. That's the only indoor facility really open. We've now opened our gift shops. They were closed for, for most of the year. 
but the other indoor experiences and, and you know, public uh, experiences where people are close together, we've not been able to do. So, you know, a lot of our education programming, we've had to take virtual. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of our wild encounters, we couldn't do anymore. So, I mean, we had to make sure we kept both staff safe our guests safe and animals safe. So that's you know, driven uh, what we've been able to do. Uh, but throughout the year, as we got more and more comfortable, we were able to open more things. We very much took the approach of walk before we run. And so when we opened, we did it very conservatively. And then as we you know, got confidence that it was working, we were able to kind of ramp things back up a little bit. Entertainment venues, family entertainment venues, such as theme parks, Six Flags and water parks and Disney and in zoos and aquariums of that nature, uh, they they took a hit last year uh, in 2020. Uh, how would you assess the financial loss? Can y'all recover that? How's it looking? Uh, I'm very pleased to report that due to the, uh, uh, the uh, generosity of the local philanthropic community, as well as um, the innovation of our team and their unbelievable commitment, we've actually weathered the financial storm quite well. Uh, to put it in perspective for you, that drop in attendance from a million plus to 410,000, combined with you know programs being canceled, events mm-hmm. being canceled, et cetera, resulted in a $13 million revenue loss for us. In response to that, we cut expenses by $6 million so that we would have had a $7 million operating loss for the year. But then we got $2.5 million of PPP, uh, and we raised uh, $5.5 million of crisis philanthropy. And because of that, we actually ended up the year in the black. We made our budget. Now, that was one hell of a way to make a budget to do that again. <laughs> yeah, I want to go back from a moment, Raymond. Let's go over these numbers. So first off, you told me it was a $13 million revenue loss. Revenue loss, right? We cut expenses by six million. Mm-hmm. So because of that, we would have had a seven million dollar operating loss if nothing else happened. But then we got a two and a half million dollar PPP loan, and we raised five and a half million dollars of crisis philanthropy that offset that seven million dollar operating loss, and then us ended us up in the black. So we made our budget for the year. It was just a heck of a way to have to do it, and I hope we don't have to do that again. Uh, obviously, we're not out. Of, we're not out of the woods. I mean, there's still COVID's still here. Mm-hmm. You know, we had all hoped it all be gone by now, and it's not. Um, you know, fortunately, I don't see us having to shut down again. Uh, but our attendance will be under pressure certainly in the first half of the year. So I mean, we'll still be relying on the community to support us. Uh, obviously, the more people that come out and visit us, the better. That helps us. Uh, but you know. Navigating the storm this year should only be easier than last year. I want for a moment to focus on the $6 million in expenses that you had to cut. Now, you didn't cut back on the prime selection for our good friends, the Lions, did you? I mean, you're not just giving them some... No, I can tell you, the, the, <laughs> the, only, the only folks that didn't uh, feel the effects of budget cuts was the animals. I mean, we take animal care very seriously, and nothing in that regard skipped a beat. They didn't change their diets. They didn't change their, you know, preventive medicine. Uh, They got all the same care they normally would. The animal staff didn't take a cut. I mean, we had the full, that was the challenge for a zoo is, you know, unlike some organizations, when their revenue goes to zero, they just close everything down. Mm -hmm. Well, we still got all those animals to take care of. So we had our full animal staff working through that whole time. But we were able to cut enough expenses um, uh, from reducing part-time staff, suspending salaries, cutting salaries, uh, cutting advertising, other things that we were able to save that $6 million of expenses to, to, to minimize the operating loss and then backfill that with the PPP and crisis philanthropy. But the fact that the community gave us $5.5 million over and beyond what they normally give us in the course of a year is truly remarkable. What is a testament to Atlanta's community. What does that say to you personally about how people feel about Zoo Atlanta? That makes me really proud. Um, I mean, I, to me, this was the ultimate test of how relevant we are to the community. And if we weren't adding value, uh, people would have voted with their feet and their wallets, and we wouldn't be around today. I mean, that, that was not out of the question that we could have gotten wiped out by this thing. But we are important to the community, and they showed that at all levels. Um, and it, it was very heartwarming um, to the point where I almost feel guilty that we ended up having a good year despite being in an environment where people are losing their lives. It's horrible. I mean, it was a horrible 
year for everybody. Mm -hmm. But because of that generosity, the zoo made it just fine. It mm -hmm. wasn't easy, but we made it. For listeners who may not be aware, you all had implemented a new ticketing process i believe are you still doing time ticketing where folks will that's correct can go we online are. okay and that's been successful obviously it has i mean i think we're all going to find that there are innovations that were driven by the pandemic that stick around so i could see us staying with time ticketing it's worked out well for guests allows us to manage our our, our guest experience better i think we've all learned that we can work more remotely and so I don't think everybody is going to have to be in the office five days a week uh, necessarily. We'll have more flexibility in schedules. Um, you know, people aren't going to be going to, uh, you know, big trade meetings and stuff as much as they have. So it'll mm -hmm. affect our events business. There's going to be a lot of ongoing changes, I think, as a result of COVID. And that'll be fascinating to watch and see, you know, what sticks after a couple of years. And Raymond, in, in terms of COVID, you all have been, you talked about you would make sure you were implementing these safety protocols from when the time visitors leave to the next day when new visitors arrive. You still have those protocols in place, I imagine. Yeah, we haven't scaled any of that back. So there's still hand sanitizer everywhere. We're still doing deep cleanings. All those protocols are in place because, unfortunately, again, things aren't any better today than they were nine months ago. I mean, we like to think we've made progress and we have because the vaccine has been developed. Mm -hmm. But until that thing's rolled out, I mean, you see the numbers, they're not any better than they were when we were all panicking in April. So, you know, we've not let up on any of that kind of thing. So then what would you all pay attention to in terms of when you want to make a decision, do you return to your normal operating hours operating or what does or has normal forever changed now with the zoo because of this I, I think forever it has changed i mean there'll be a lot of things that don't change but there will be things that change and we'll we'll take the the positives that came out of those changes and keep them and you know our guide for that will obviously be you know making sure we maintain a safe environment both for guests staff hmm. animals everybody uh, but then also that we maximize you know, the guest experience in a positive way um, and manage the efficiency of our organization. And so, yeah, there'll be there'll be refinements we made that will stick. You know, we wanted to be able to do more virtual programming than we have in the past. This accelerated that. It caused mm -hmm. us to have to double down on the gas and be able to put things out there virtually, which has expanded our markets. I mean, we've had programs where we've had people from outside the country participating because they could do it online. Let's talk about 2021. Would you be able to roll out any new exhibits, any new programs? Still rolling out a new exhibit in my mind. Obviously, we spent you know, $55 million building a grand new African savanna, mm -hmm. and a new event facility in the old in the old Psychorama building. And a lot of people still haven't gotten to see that because of this pandemic. I mean, that was so unfortunate for us when the timing of this pandemic, because we had just gotten through the low point in our season. We were about to go into our high point of our season. We were about to have all these new events coming in into Savannah Hall. We had lots of bookings. Uh, but after just a few events, we had to shut it all down. So uh, the timing was very difficult for us. Raymond, as we end this conversation, and I've asked everyone this, you know, as we reflected on 2020, that's in the past now. But moving forward, what is your hope for 2021, just in general? I would say in general, I, I think we've all come to see how interdependent we all are, both at a personal and professional level. I think we've seen in society that we've gotten way too divided on way too many fronts. And my hope and prayer is that we've learned a lesson from that and that we come out of it stronger than ever and that we you know, are more respectful of each other. We appreciate each other more that we have the right balance in our lives and get our priorities all straight and that uh, people you know, thrive personally and professionally. And I've, I'm not naive to say that's not without challenges, but I certainly think there's a lot to be excited about. It is going to feel really good to be on this other end of this pandemic. I've suffered from health issues for years. And I can tell you, because of that, I value and appreciate a day where I feel good like never before. And so in a way, I'm kind of thankful I had those challenges I had. It makes me appreciate what I have today. Zoo Atlanta President and CEO Raymond King, as always, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. 
My pleasure, Rose. Thank you so much. Come see us. I will. Thanks, Raymond. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. In his first press conference since the inauguration, President Joe Biden says he expects the U.S. will be able to give nearly 1.5 million COVID-19 vaccinations a day. We are optimistic that we will have enough vaccine and in very short order, we, we as you know, we came in office without knowledge of how much vaccine was being held in abeyance or available. Now that we're here, we've been around a week or so, we now have that. And we've gotten commitments from some of the producers that they will, in fact, produce more vaccine in a relatively short period of time and then continue that down the road. Meanwhile, every state is responsible for its vaccine distribution plan. Now, here in Georgia, those eligible for the vaccine, well, that will be administered through phases. You heard Brian Kemp talking about, Governor Brian Kemp talking about that earlier. And there's something else, though. Georgia was recently ranked worst in the nation for COVID vaccination rates. Now, the state is allowing health systems to begin to vaccinate patients 65 and older. So what's that process like? And some other questions we want to ask. I'm joined now by Dr. Jane Morgan, an Atlanta-based cardiologist and the clinical director of the COVID task force at Piedmont Healthcare. Dr. Morgan, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Hi, Rose. Thanks for having me. Good to speak with you again. Yeah, nice to talk with you again. Let's begin with this. What do you make of President Biden and his optimism of administering 1.5 million COVID-19 vaccines in a day, someday? Is that a realistic goal, you think? I I certainly hope so. I mean, we are so far behind this curve. Here we are 10 months into the pandemic. Certainly, um, you know, without argument, we're worse off now than we were at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, We are, you know, approaching over 400,000 deaths, more than we've seen even in World War II. Mm -hmm. This is clearly, clearly an emergency, which is why we have emergency use authorizations of these two messenger RNA vaccines. And so I hope that we can get 1.5 million doses in, because one thing we have to think about with both Pfizer and Moderna, that we have to have that amount Mm -hmm. because each person will require two doses. So even one and a half million doses, while um, um, admirable and aggressive, probably still isn't fast enough when you think about each person is consuming two of these. Mm -hmm. Now, some will say it's not even worth going back and and obviously recognizing or acknowledging that the Trump administration did not tell the truth about the vaccination. So in moving forward, but as in your assessment of the national plan and even the state's vaccination plan, if you want to get into that, um, we really can't do anything if you don't have the vaccines, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, vaccines don't save people. Vaccinations do. Mm-hmm. So we have got to vaccinate people, which means not just the supply chain. How do we understand the roadblocks to the messaging what is making people reticent Mm -hmm. or concerned or hesitant. All of that really ideally should have rolled out ahead of the vaccine, preparing our population, preparing our community, because it appears that it came very quickly and suddenly and people have a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. And so I think that has been a significant barrier, not only for communities that are black and brown, but for healthcare workers as well. We're seeing that. 
when you look at the state's vaccination plan, which will be in phases, and obviously you want to start with those frontline workers and perhaps right. those uh, long, long-term long care facility residents and those that work with those people um, in that population, rather, that that's a, you, you agree that's a, a good first phase for that population, particularly with our first responders and healthcare personnel. Absolutely. These are the people who are putting their lives at risk every day to continue to fight this pandemic. And not only are they putting their lives at risk, they're risking the lives of their families as well. Don't forget, they go home somewhere every day. Many stories of physicians, especially uh, disrobing in the garage, sleeping in the basement, having absolutely no contact with their families out of fear of what they may be bringing home with them. Many, many, many sacrifices. So absolutely, these should be the first people as we move into this third phase. Actually, we're in the third phase of this pandemic, which has been the worst one yet Mm -hmm. with regard to volume and mortality. So absolutely, we have to protect and prepare our frontline workers because they are the ones, you know, in the in the trenches doing the grunt work and taking these risks. As director of the COVID task force for Piedmont Healthcare, what will you oversee? So what we're looking at now is trying to understand our relationship with the community, certainly the the black and brown community, Mm -hmm. how we might serve them better, how we might partner better, um, how we might uh, be a, a better segue, how we might improve the bonds of trust such that Piedmont can be considered um, and revered as uh, a real health institution where people can come and understand that no matter where they are from what walks of life, um, they can trust uh, that system. And we're using this as an opportunity to do that, to bridge those gaps, to work on communication and doing that via the COVID platform because there's been so much hesitancy, so much distrust not only of healthcare systems in general, but research, the government. And here we are with COVID vaccines where all, where all three of those collide. Mm-hmm. So we certainly have uh, a challenge in front of us. And, and that's where, you know, Piedmont is committed to improving um, that relationship in these diverse communities. I want to get your thoughts on this, because according to the KFF COVID-19 vaccine monitor survey, two thirds of adults say they are confident that the vaccine in the U.S. will be distributed fairly. However, about half of black adults say they are not too or not at all confident that the vaccine distribution efforts are taking into account the needs of black people. What do you make of that? Yeah, so so not surprising. We certainly uh, live within a, a social construct um, that is biased. Um, We understand that. We understand what it's like to have to navigate to Americas. And so whether that's true or not, that certainly is an understandable perception and fear, Um, again, because of the lack of trust of the system. We don't feel that the system will actually look out for us or value our lives equitably to other lives. So this is inherent in the social construct, you know, of America. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly it, it, it falls over into the healthcare system. And so um, I think those sorts of statements and those perceptions should not be surprising at all. And among Hispanic adults, it was just 38% somewhat confident Um, 15% very confident, 14% not at all confident, and about 30% not too confident. So when you talk about black and brown communities and the confidence level they have and just the vaccine distribution being of an equitable, you know, pathway for folks to get the vaccine, then what needs to happen from a policy standpoint? If you were advising the Biden administration or even here in Georgia, what would you tell them? Mm -hmm. You know, so, so every culture requires a different approach. Every culture responds differently and every culture has um, different aspects to it that need to be understood. And if you look at uh, the Hispanic 
community, multiple arrays of different people fall into that Hispanic community. And mm -hmm. even within that community, they are not all the same. So those kinds of things need to be understood at a grassroots level, including whether there um, are, are language barriers that make people very suspicious and, and, and you tend to be more isolated mm -hmm. and what self-protected because it's hard for you to understand and you're more easily misled. So we have to begin to understand that. I think if I were advising the Biden-Harris um, um, administration, you know, the messaging is going to be important, a campaign of messaging for all communities that needs to be specific to, to various communities, a campaign um, identifying uh, the safety of the vaccine. We certainly need to have science first mm -hmm. and science needs to be trusted with these facts. And then I think, um, you know, the vaccine rollout needs to probably have a little bit more federal regulation. Is that the state levels? Every state is doing it differently. Different states get different amounts. It's distributed to the hospitals. The hospitals have, you know, it's just all over the place. Mm. The same as the PPE, where we really don't have federal regulations and federal guidelines and everyone is working to do their absolute best with what they have within the middle of a pandemic. And considering every state is different, you look at states that have a large rural population and I've hear very little about, you know, a plan as it relates to native the Native American community. So there's a lot to consider there. Dr. Morgan, I want to get your thoughts on this too because if we are talking about the 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 groups that fit into the high, at risk and some folks have said, right. well, what about our, our folks who might have disabilities, physical disabilities? Mm -hmm. You know, is right. it fair to say that, well, we're starting with people who are 65 and older, but you could be 22 and have a have a severe medical condition, but you're still asked to, you know, you're asked to wait because you're in a different population, primarily because of your age. Yeah. I mean, how do you, it's a tough task. How do you filter out who should be first once we get past you know, first responders and folks mm -hmm. like that, because some people think teachers should be in that first responders frontline group. And a lot of folks feel that way. Excellent point, I think. Excellent point. And what I will say is when we get to 1A, even though the 1A is called first responders, it envelopes in people with developmental disabilities, mental handicaps. So those so people who are vulnerable regardless of the age. And so those people should be able to access the vaccine in this 1A category that's called first responders, but it envelopes in others as well. The voice you hear is Dr. Jane Morgan, Atlanta-based cardiologist and the clinical director of the COVID task force at Piedmont Healthcare. Or have you, have you all been able to vaccinate some of your patients? Oh, absolutely. We're running uh, vaccination clinics for our patients, for our staff, um, I think that's very important uh, that Piedmont do that. And you know, we have an entire COVID vaccine rollout team that is focused on this. Um, and it, as you can imagine, it it pulls your resources thinly. Um, in the in the midst of all this, we're actually managing the pandemic. We have mm -hmm. you know um, many patients as well as every hospital. Um, that we're also managing in addition to trying to serve as a depot to distribute vaccines, you know, as equitably and as quickly as we possibly can. In fact, I actually work as a volunteer vaccinator mm -hmm. in some of these clinics because we need all resources to step up and, and do our part. And although you are a cardiologist, you have been primarily focusing on medical research of late as well. I have been my near and dear to my heart. And I think, you know, that's something we need to talk about clinical trials and why black people are not involved in clinical trials and what that means to our community. And when we look at these two Moderna and Pfizer uh, vaccines that are out, Pfizer actually did a pretty good job, had 10.3% participation of African-Americans, Pfizer between 9.3 and 9.8. Each trial uh, Moderna had about 30,000 participants in their phase three, which is their last phase. Pfizer had about 40,000. So when you look at about 70,000 people, and we were about 10% of that, mm -hmm. that's significant. That's about 7,000 of us 
participated. And even though it doesn't represent the 13.4% of our population, Mm -hmm. it actually was pretty good considering we generally make up less than four or 5% of trials because of our suspicion of not being treated well within the research, within the healthcare. So I think we can be confident that the data that was submitted to the FDA in which they granted emergency use authorization for both of these vaccines is relevant Mm -hmm. to our population and the Hispanic population as well that was represented in 20% and 26% in both of these trials. You mentioned the suspicion that folks have, and and I'll you give you another word. Some folks are just hesitant because, and again, we I know we keep having this conversation about the past with the Tuskegee experiment, and there have been so many other experiments as well here in 2021. And I asked this question to Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice just yesterday with the Morehouse School of Medicine. You know, it's going to take more than, and I asked her, this, it's going to take more than just the science and data when you're talking about a campaign to get black and brown folks to not only participate in clinical trials, but take the vaccine, it's going to take more than just giving the science and the data. No, absolutely. It's going to be actionable. One of the key things is we need people in real leadership positions who have real seats at the table, who can affect policy, who can represent all peoples, who can provide a different voice and different perspective. That's actually where it starts, such that leadership has some has some voice. We then need to recruit um, physicians. Physicians, Black physicians uh, control 80% of all African-American patients in the country. And that's not by coincidence. That's because Black people generally select a physician based on where they feel safe. Mm-hmm. Imagine that. We select physicians by safety. And basically what we're saying is who do we trust to value our lives? And so if that's how we select physicians, we have to get these physicians involved as principal investigators, meaning lead physicians of clinical trials, because they are controlling most of the patients. Mm -hmm. So no wonder we can't get patients to enroll and sort of move beyond Tuskegee, because we really don't have that bridge to do so. And so we actually have a lot of work. It needs to be actionable. You know, really, you don't ever have to talk the talk if you walk the walk. You know, we used to use the term health disparities. Now we've moved to better health outcomes for all populations here. Dr. J. Morgan, as we wrap up, what is your hope where this nation will be a year from now as it relates to the pandemic? Oh, my goodness. I, I certainly hope that we have reached some degree of herd immunity that we've come together as a nation to support science, to support the beautiful mosaic fabric that makes up our country and not enemies of people who don't look like you. I would like to see the, in, this entire pandemic, which is multi-layered in not just science, but racism, health inequity, I would like to see us well on the way to uh, a different and more promising America with this virus under control that Americans have come together to do what we need to do. And certainly science having a voice and a trusted voice as well. Dr. Jane Morgan, Atlanta-based cardiologist and the clinical director of the COVID task force at Piedmont Healthcare. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Rose. Great seeing you again. Same here. (laughs) Take care now. Bye. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp's proposed $27 billion budget, the governor made it clear he has no plans for additional cuts, as in 2020, and he has plans to invest in certain key areas. This pandemic highlighted many challenges for communities outside Metro Atlanta, but none more so than the critical need for high-speed internet access, for better health care and educational outcomes, for job opportunities, and something as simple as keeping in touch with loved ones. That's why I'm proud to announce that we're including $20 million for this fiscal year and $10 million per year moving forward to boost access to rural broadband grants so local leaders can continue a growing and vital partnership with the private sector and quickly improve internet access 
for the people of rural Georgia. And as the governor mentioned, the pandemic has highlighted an already existing problem, often referred to as the digital divide. But the problem isn't just about connectivity. There's a lot tied to the problem. So joining me now to talk more about this is Catherine DeWitt. She's manager of the Broadband Research Initiative at the Pew Charitable Trust. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me today. So you heard what Governor Kemp had to say. I imagine when you hear that, you all have done so much research about this. It's promising. Yes, uh, it's very exciting to see uh, the or to hear the governor make a commitment in funding of this size uh, to address the problem. You know, while the number varies in terms of just how many households lack broadband access, you all have reported it could be from 21 million Americans to as high as 162 million. That's that's quite a, a gap there. We just don't know how many people are impacted by not having connectivity, not just due to finances, but just because it's not available in their area. This is a problem. It's a huge problem. And you hit the nail on the head. Um, You know, we, the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission at the federal level has one number uh, for what broadband is. uh, And then other researchers have identified other numbers, which is why we have this significant gap. And that gap exists because of the type of uh, the way that data is collected. Um, What's noteworthy about Georgia is that the state has spent the last several years uh, Mm -hmm. building a database in order to better understand what connectivity looks like at the local level or the absence of connectivity. Is this simply then, uh, Mr. Witt, about infrastructure building, that it's something as simple as you need to put the broadband infrastructure in and all will be well, or is it a lot more complex than that? Oh, it's absolutely more complex than that. But getting past the infrastructure is certainly the first step in the right direction. Um, And I think that the um, we're talking about a physical network. Mm -hmm. You know, we often I joke that, you know, we think sometimes that the Internet connections sort of fly through the air, uh, but they really do rely on a physical infrastructure, a physical network in order to operate, which means that it takes time and money to build. Um, which is why uh, we see so often the public and private sector working together to figure out um, how they really can um, help the private sector get those communities online, particularly when they may not offer an obvious business case. Um, but to your point, it's just that's just the first step. In the reporting and the in- investigating that you all have been doing, has it taken a holistic approach where it's a lot of different private and public partnerships coming together to address the problem? Is that what you all are finding? Unequivocally, uh, we've really found that it does take a, um, it takes, you know, everybody rowing in the same direction, if you will. It takes um, leaders at every level of government. It takes strong leadership from states, um, strong local engagement, uh, both from elected officials and community leaders of all types. Um, it takes input from the private sector, uh, from healthcare, education, uh, you name it, they should be involved and at the table because at the end of the day, um, this affects everyone. It affects every household and it affects every business. So we've talked about making sure we have the adequate or accurate data to support just who is without broadband access. Then you talk about setting a policy framework and then from there bringing everyone together and then we get into I guess, the execution, which is the the infrastructure. But why are we still having this conversation then in 2021? (laughs) It's an excellent question. Um, You know, I think that um, the... um, the pandemic really accelerated what exactly what you touched on at the the beginning of this discussion, which is that there is a... um, um, The pandemic showed that there was a significant digital divide in this Mm -hmm. country. I think what changed with the pandemic is that now folks are realizing what it really means for households not to have an internet connection uh, and how it impacts their ability to work, their ability to learn from home, see their doctors, really stay safe. Um, So what I think it has done in many cases is just increase the urgency um, that already was there um, Mm -hmm. for solving the digital divide, but this is a big problem and it's also an expensive problem. Uh, so I think that it does, and it takes a lot of political will. It takes a lot of um, relationship building in order to do this right and make sure that we're using public dollars and private dollars effectively. 
Let's talk about, is there a state out there that through your analysis and through your assessment, you all feel like, or it could be more than one, that uh, have a pretty good framework from the from the data to the policy to all the shareholders or stakeholders? Is there a state out there that has a pretty good template on how to address this? There are several. Um, you know, we look at, uh, we've looked at nine states. We've done in-depth research in nine states across the country. Um, one that we typically point to is Minnesota, um, specifically because of all those elements that you touched on earlier. They have a, a strong policy framework. They have uh, strong engagement from their state legislators and from the executive office. They work to engage a diversity of stakeholders from urban and rural communities and the private sector across the country. Um, they have a funding program in place, and that funding is really important, again, to help kind of bridge that ROI gap uh, for the private sector. Um, they also have accountability measures in place, um, mm -hmm. and with that data collection to make sure that the public dollar is um, achieving what they've set out to achieve. Um, and I will flag that Georgia has some of these elements in place already. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the data collection uh, really highlighted the strength of the, the relationships that the team has built at the ground level. They have the type of interagency coordination in place within state government to facilitate breaking down the silos that really can be barriers to progress um, for state programs. And then um, they have also instituted um, robust planning procedures to help communities figure out where does broadband fit into our longer term economic and community growth plan? And then how have we assessed what barriers may exist um, to deployment? And there's another factor here, Catherine, because let's say magically tomorrow, you and I have solved the problem and everybody has access, broadband access, but just because you have the access doesn't mean that it's affordable for you. So now there's another mm -hmm. component in here. So you, you are you also, did you all, report on involving those who, I guess, sort of have the market on the uh, on the access. I have a high-speed connection. I won't mention the the person but or the vendor, but, you know, I had no choice. I had to get it because yeah. it was the only one that was allowed in my where I live. So that could be problematic for some people. But let's talk about the cost factor then. So did you all look at if there were resources to help people pay for it? Because maybe mm -hmm. it costs more when you're in a rural part of a state as opposed to a city like Atlanta, or you can, you have different options. See? Mm -hmm. Yes. So uh, we looked at, uh, there were only a really a small handful of states that have implemented affordability um, programs, but we're seeing, um, and we saw this before the pandemic, I will give state legislators credit for this, um, but an increasing focus on that affordability component um, for two reasons. Um, the first, it's the second reason that um, people cite not being online. The first is the absence of a connection. The second is the cost. Mm -hmm. um, the other reason state legislators uh, were increasingly looking at it is that they have providers coming in saying, we're happy to participate in your program, but what if people can't afford our connection? Absolutely. So, yeah, but I think the, um, you know, so there isn't a ton of research out there to help us understand what does affordable really mean um, and what are sustainable solutions for addressing that affordability challenge. However, the upside, if there is an upside to the pandemic, but the upside is that we've seen states um, implement emergency broadband subsidies. We've also seen the federal government um, address this as well. So mm -hmm. we are hoping that the last year may offer us some lessons learned in how to not only um, create programs to facilitate affordable access, but also to make sure that folks can access those programs and that they're aware that they exist. I remember my father yelling me to get off the computer because I was tying up the line, our phone <laughs> phone line. Same. And then DSL Same. came and we're like, oh, this is great. We've arrived. Uh, let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about uh, how you define success. Uh, and, and this is still ongoing. So through you, through you all, is success based on that we can get folks, everyone will be connected. I know in Wisconsin in reading your report, uh, they're saying that if by 20, if by January 1st, 2025, if they want it, they hope to have every Wisconsin night, as they call them, to have affordable access to broadband service. Is that a, a pretty good metric that everybody who wants it has access to it? What do you see as, uh, as the primary metrics for success here? 
I think that that depends on the state. Um, you know, our, you know, we hope that, you know, every American will have access to an affordable, reliable, high-speed connection um, at some point soon. Um, but, you know, it, as I noted earlier, this is such a local issue. Um, you know, we are cheered to see so many states setting more aggressive goals like Wisconsin set. Um, and um, Washington similarly has an aggressive goal that's associated with a very high speed. Um, and we also know that the Biden administration has set an aggressive goal to achieve universal access. Um, and I'm sorry, I can't remember by what year they've set. Sure. Um, you know, we measure success by helping states, um, you know, develop policies and implement programs that we know work. Um, so we hope that we can contribute to states and the federal government achieving that goal in that way. Catherine DeWitt is the manager of the Broadband Research Initiative at the Pew Charitable Trust. And we always enjoy reading your reports and having you all come on and take it even further for us. Thank you so much for taking the time as always. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I think I dated myself by using DSL, but even before then. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not. Thanks so much, Catherine. I appreciate it. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. as well as in our podcast. You can subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. And a programming note tomorrow at 1 o'clock during this program, we will have the live stream of Hank Aaron's memorial service at Friendship Baptist Church. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.